I'm so glad that you're here tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can open a Bible book that was written years and years and centuries and centuries ago and, and read that, Lord, you prophesied things that are happening before our very eyes in this day and time, and we thank you. Heavenly Father, it proves to us that the Word of God is the Word of God. It's truth without mixture of error. It proves to us, Lord, that you're a sovereign God and you've established your throne in the heavens and your sovereignty rules over all. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that even though from our perspective the world seems to be falling apart, from your perspective, it's falling in place. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would Speak to our hearts tonight through the Word of God. I ask you, Father, for the filling and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, everything that's said, do a work in our hearts. Prepare us for the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a, a, a series. I don't know how long it's going to last. But it's entitled Israel, Prophecy, and the Middle East. We're looking at, at, at uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, chapter 37, chapter 38, and 39. It's an ancient prophecy. I, I guess that uh, Ezekiel probably wrote this somewhere around anywhere from 600 to 500 B.C., and so we understand that it is ancient, but I tell you, it's like opening the paper or, or opening your phone to, to a, a news station. It's like reading current events when you read Ezekiel chapter 36, 37, 38, and 39. I want to begin tonight by posing a question. Why is there so much anti-Semitism in the world today? I had a, a church member pose that question to me last week, and I began to dig into it, and I, I gave her what I thought was the answer, and my answer turned out to be right, by the way. But there, there are a lot of layers to that answer. Why is there so much anti-Semitism in the world? You remember what happened on October the 7th, right? 1,400 Israelis, the vast majority of them civilians, were massacred in cold blood. I have read what was done to some of those victims, and I cannot talk about it in this room. I would never talk about it in this room. It is beyond brutal. It is almost animalistic. It's demonic what happened on October the 7th. Right now as we speak, the Hamas terrorists have hostages there in Gaza. I want to make something very clear. I, I said this last week and I want to say it again. Israel is not fighting the Palestinians. Israel is fighting a terrorist organization called Hamas and also another terrorist organization to the north in Lebanon called Hezbollah. Listen, when we think about anti-Semitism, I want to read to you what the UN Secretary General said at the UN the other day, this week, he said this. He said, I quote, October the 7th did not happen in a vacuum. Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. Now that's interesting. Do you know that Hamas has ruled the Gaza Strip since 2005? All the Jews moved out of the Gaza Strip. They left beautiful homes. They left uh, places that they had developed, and they moved out. There's not a single Jew 
in the Gaza Strip except the ones who are being held in tunnels and God knows what's happening to them right now as hostages. Uh, one, one newspaper said they're being detained. They're not being detained. They're hostages. They are being brutally tortured for the sake of a mosque. Now, you do understand that the, 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 the group Hamas, their stated objective in their own documents is to wipe Israel off the face of the planet, to exterminate every Jew. That's their stated objective. Now, The book of Zechariah, I've got this in your, in your notes here. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, makes a statement. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. When the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured. Listen, we live in a time when the world is absolutely obsessed with that little strip of land called Israel and that little city called Jerusalem. Everything that's happening prophetically is surrounding the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Now, the other day, I've been following the news, and in Times Square, uh, immediately after Hamas did their dastardly deed, the Democratic Socialists of America marched in Times Square and they said, our resistance stormed illegal settlements, shouted one speaker, and paraglided across colonial borders. The crowd responded with rousing cheers. The Chicago chapter of Black Lives Matter and Students for Justice in Palestine, at, they, uh, they uh, rebelled and they... they uh, paraded there at Cal California State University and in the city of Chicago. Listen, th this sense of anti-Semitism started in Egypt years and years and years and years ago. You know, you know the story. Let, let me just give the timeline for Israel, okay? It's interesting. In 2000 B.C., God chose Abraham as the father of the Jewish people. You remember Abraham on, on one owned only a little bit of land there in the promised land. You know what it was? It was a burial site. That's all he owned was a burial site. But God promised him that he would give him the land and that he would give the land to his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. In 1900 B.C., Abraham's son Isaac is given the land as an inheritance and takes the lead over Israel according to Genesis 26, verses 2 to 4. In 1850 B.C., Isaac's son Jacob is given the land as an inheritance and rules over Israel. In 1400 B.C., Moses leads the people of Egypt the, the people out of Egypt and back to Israel. In 1010 B.C., King David unites the 12 tribes into one nation, and King Solomon build, builds the first temple in Jerusalem around 970 B.C. In 930 B.C., Israel is divided into the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians conquered the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, and they took them into exile. In 605 B.C., the Babylonians conquered the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. 
And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple. In 539 B.C., the Persians conquer the Babylonians and take control of Israel. In 538 B.C., the Jews return to Israel from Babylonian captivity. In 520 B.C., Solomon's temple is rebuilt, the, the second temple. In 323 B.C., Egypt and Syria fight over Israel, according to Daniel chapter 11. In 167 B.C., the Hasmoneans recapture Israel. In 70 B.C., the Romans conquer Israel. In 20 B.C., King Herod builds the temple. In 6 B.C., around 6 B.C., maybe 4 B.C., Jesus, the Jewish Messiah and Savior of the world, was born in Bethlehem in Judea. In 70 A.D., the Romans destroy the temple. And then around 130 A.D., the, the, the Roman Emperor Hadrian drives every Jew out of Israel and the Jews are scattered to the four corners of the earth. And for about 2,000 years, for about 2,000 years, the Jews did not have a homeland. They didn't have a homeland. And then that's where the prophecy of, of Ezekiel comes in. Now, with all this in mind, I want you to understand that the reason there's anti-Semitism in the world is because, God, because Satan hates God and God has chosen the Jewish people to be his covenant people. God has made a covenant with them and that's the reason Satan has gone after the Jews since the time that they were in Egypt in, in captivity and slavery. Do you remember that? Do you remember what uh, the Pharaoh uh, demanded? He demanded that any little baby Jewish boy be what? Be thrown into the river Nile, right? And by the grace of God, Moses was spared. And Moses, God raised up Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egyptian captivity. Now, let's get back into Ezekiel chapter 36 for just a moment. Last week, we looked at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 1 through 15, and we noticed that most of the, the, the material in those, that first part of the chapter deals with the land of Israel. Remember, God calls it my land, right? You remember that? He says, my, let me see, I believe it's verse 5. Yeah. Look at verse 5, chapter 36. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. So God calls it my land. You know what he calls the Jewish people? He calls them my people. My land, my people. Now, let me make something very clear. If you believe the Bible, if you believe the Bible to be the Word of God, then it does not matter what the UN says. It does not matter what CNN or Fox News or any other group says. I tell you what counts. What God says is what counts. And God has promised that he would give that land, that little strip of land. Do you realize the Arabs have all of the land all, all surrounding that little strip of land called Israel? And even within the territory, the confines of Israel, the Arabs have, have Gaza and, and they have the West Bank. And you know, when you go to Israel on a tour, and you're on a bus, and you're going, you're touring Israel and all that kind of stuff, and you, get, you want to go to Bethlehem, you know what happens? You pull over to the side of the road, and you switch buses. 
You get on a bus that has a Palestinian driver and a Palestinian tour guide. We've done that. Darlene, I've been three times. And I tell you what, they, they are the nicest people. And, and Darlene loves that, that shop they have there in, in, in uh, Bethlehem. And she spent a lot of my money in that shop, uh, three trips, I promise you. But, but I want you to understand that they will not let a Jewish driver and a Jewish tour guide lead a group into Bethlehem, and Israel will not allow a Palestinian driver and a Palestinian tour guide to lead a group into Israel. It's part of the dynamics of the time. So we, we see in the first part of chapter 36 that there's a huge emphasis upon the land of Israel. And, and tonight, I don't, I don't think I'm going to make it all the way to the end. I tried real hard today. But we're going to get almost to the end of chapter 36. In chapter 16, ch chapter 36, verse 16 to 21, Ezekiel deals with Israel's sinful past. And then he laid out the nation's future restoration. I, I want you to notice something. Go ahead and mark this in your notes. In verse 22, or in your Bible, in verse 22, in verse 33, and verse 37, there's a clue for us. And you know what that clue is? Thus says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God. Each of those introduce a new subject or a new aspect of the restoration of Israel to its land. Now, this passage that we're going to look at unfolds the, the process and the benefits of the restoration of Israel as a nation. However, there's one thought that dominates this entire section. It's God's primary motivation. You know what it is? To vindicate the holiness of his name. I, I tell you, it's amazing. As you read through this section in Ezekiel chapter 36, how over and over again the Spirit of God who inspired Ezekiel to write this that we're reading and studying tonight, how he inspired him to make a big deal out of the holiness of of God and his name. And we're going to see that. So God is speaking to a people. He is blessed in remarkable ways. Yet Israel had spurned God. I want you to notice verses 16 to 21. The Bible says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, who, whose land? Their own land. They defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, now notice this, they profaned my holy name. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about the Jewish people. When the Jewish people went into exile into Assyria, and basically he's talking here about the southern kingdom that went into exile where? In Babylon, right? He said, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of, of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. Whose land? His land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Now, look, if, if you've been around me very long, you know I've taught you over and over again, when you find something that is repeated numerous times in a passage of Scripture, it, it's like the Holy Spirit is shining a spotlight on it and saying, look, you better wake up. You better pay attention to what's being said here. 
As I said earlier, the main focus here is profaning the name of God. That's what the children of Israel did. Now, before dealing with Israel's restoration and future cleansing, Ezekiel reminded the exiles, remember they're in exile, where, it, where is Ezekiel? Ezekiel is a priest, and you know where he is? He's in exile in Babylon, and he is, he's the prophet of God there in Babylon speaking to the covenant people of God who are in captivity. So Ezekiel reminded the exiles of their past sin, which ushered in their judgment in the first place. Now look at this. You might want to put a star by this. The Jewish people were guilty of two things, polluting God's land and profaning God's name. They were guilty of that. That's why they were in exile. That's why God said enough is enough. Now, do you remember when God sent them into exile in Babylon? Do you remember what God did? You remember what he said? He put a time stamp on it. He said, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. There was a beginning point and there was an ending point, 70 years. Now, the polluting and profaning were like a, uh, and it, as the text says here, were like a menstrual discharge that rendered a woman ceremonially unclean and defiled everything she touched. That's how God viewed it. That's how God viewed what they had done. As they polluted the land and profaned his name. These verses sort of give us some clarity. In Ezekiel 16, 36, thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols. You say, what in the world he's talking about there? Well, look at Ezekiel 23, 37 to 39. For they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. Thus they have committed adultery with their idols and even caused their sons whom they bore to me to pass through the fire to them as food. Again, they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and have profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slaughtered their children for their idols, they entered my sanctuary on the same day to profane it. And lo, and lo thus they did within my house. Do you understand the gravity of this? The people of God have become very, very, very carnal and rebellious. They were worshiping idols. They were worshiping idols that within the framework of that idol's religion, they demanded that they offer their, their sons and their daughters as sacrifices to these idols. They kill their own sons and daughters as a sacrifice in worshiping these false gods. And God had had enough. Can I say this to you? God expects everybody in this room who is a believer and everybody watching live stream, if you're a believer, he expects you to honor his name. And there's a caution here for all of us. Don't allow yourself to profane the name of God by your attitude or your actions or your words. It's serious business. I want you to understand, if God would discipline his chosen people like this, you know the Bible teaches that he'll discipline us too, right? The Bible warns us in the book of James to stay away from spiritual adultery. You say, well, what is spiritual adultery? It's when anything in your life becomes more important than God. You see, an idol is anything 
that takes the place of God. Do you know what place God ought to um, take in your life? Number one, God ought to be more important to you than your family. God ought to be more important to you than your spouse, your children, your grandchildren. God ought to be more important to you than your job, your career, your bank account, your, your possession. God ought to be more important to you than anybody or anything. If anything takes the place of God at the top rung of your life of priority, I tell you, friend, it is spiritual adultery. And you need to repent of it and get right with God. You need to make sure that he has first place in your life. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this stuff, the clothes, the, the food, all the stuff you need in your life, it'll be, it'll be provided for you by God. You put him first. So Israel in the north and Judah in the south were exiled because of their idolatry, described here as spiritual adultery. And even in their exile, this is what blows my mind. You would think as they marched across the desert sands on the way to Babylon that they would be brokenhearted over their sin. I want you to know that if you were to ask Ezekiel, if we could call up Ezekiel right now and say, hey, Ezekiel, tell, tell us about the, the, the people in exile there in Babylon, the, the chosen people of God. Were, were, they, were they brokenhearted? Were they seeking God with all their heart? You know what he would say? He said, I had to preach my heart out to this group because they were just as rebellious in Babylon as they were in the promised land. Amazing. Now, the Babylonians, because of the way their worldview, they would have viewed the fact that Israel was taken out of the land and the temple of God was destroyed. They would have viewed this as a sign that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a weak God. He's a weak God. That, that's why the Bible talks about his name being profaned there in Babylon. Because they, they look down on this God of Israel because the God of Israel is so weak he couldn't even protect his people. He couldn't even protect his own temple. And God would have none of that. But God was determined that that 70 years there in Babylon would serve as a, a reminder to the chosen people of God that God must, first, must come first in their lives, that idolatry must be done away with. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. Page 3, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. Now that's, a, that's the first, remember I told you there are three clues here that are scattered out through the rest of uh, Ezekiel 36. Here's the first one, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you went. How many times has the Spirit of God inspired Ezekiel to include that about profaning the name of God? Already, it's just numerous times, right? Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my what? My great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. By the way, this idea that the nations will know that I am the Lord, that is repeated 84 times in the book of Ezekiel. Do you think God's trying to get a message across? 84 times that they may know that I am the Lord. You say, Pastor, is God concerned about the other nations? Other than absolutely. Absolutely. 
It's not God's will that any perish, but all come to repentance. Do you know why God uh, created the covenant people of Israel? He created them for one purpose, to be a kingdom of priests and to spread the name of God and the truth about God to every nation on the planet. Did they do it? No. Instead of turning outward and ministering to the world and making sure the world knew about Yahweh, they turned inward. And they became very, very exclusive. Very exclusive. It was like the Jewish people viewed God as their God and not the God of the Syrians or the God of, 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 of the Babylonians. Let me tell you. God showed them something there in, in, in Babylonian captivity because I believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to meet Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had, a, had a, an, an appointment with God. Do you remember what happened? God turned him in basically into an animal for seven years because of his pride and arrogance. And when he came out of that seven-year period of his own personal spiritual exile, he recognized that there was only one God. He recognized that the Jewish God was the one God. And man, I'm telling you, it's amazing when you read how Nebuchadnezzar responded after that little encounter with God as a result of God's discipline in his life. I want you to notice something. If you take all of the, the text in Ezekiel 36... And just take just a moment and just circle or underline all of the I wills. Just do that for, my, for me in just a second, okay? Beginning with verse 22. All of the I wills. Now, why do you think that's important? Who, who does the I refer to? It's not Ezekiel. It's God. I want you to notice that God says he's going to do some very specific things. Now, now folks, look at me. When God sets his mind on doing something, who's going to stop him? Nobody. Nobody's going to stop God. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. God is concerned about the nations. If you go over to Revelation chapter 5, and you read about this marvelous worship service that's taking place in heaven, there are people from every nation, every tribe, every people group there around the throne of God worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's will. The revelation of God's name or character was a major aspect of God's dealing with Israel from the very beginning. And remember the very beginning here, look at Exodus chapter 9, verse 13 to 16. Remember, there was a famine in the land of Israel. And the Jewish people, it was really basically one big family, okay? It really wasn't a nation yet. It was one big family. And there was a famine. And Jacob sent one of his he sent several of his sons down to get some food for, for the rest of the family in, into Egypt. And guess who was prime minister of Egypt at the time? Joseph, Jacob's son. 
And through a, a series of events that occurred, Jacob brought his whole family, the Jewish people, down to Egypt, and Joseph promised to take care of them. And boy, they were given the land of Goshen, which was great for their cattle. And God began to help the ladies have many, 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 many babies. And they just exploded in number. But Joseph died. And another Pharaoh came to power who did not know Joseph and did not know what Joseph had done to preserve the Egyptian people, and, and basically the people of the whole world. And, and so they made slaves out of the Jewish people. And the Bible says in, that, that God sent Moses down to deliver the people out of Egyptian bondage. And remember, there were, there were a series of, 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 um, of events where, where God began to, to judge Pharaoh and the people of Egypt because they wouldn't let the, the people of Israel go. And the Bible says in Exodus 9, 13 to 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. There it is again, you see? So that you will know that there's no one like me in all the earth. There's only one God, folks. There's not a, 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 a God for um, the, the uh, Syrians. There's not a God for the, the, the uh, Europeans and a God for, for Americans and a God for Canadians. There's only one God, the creator God. He created everything. He, the Bible says he's established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. That's the God that we're talking about here. So in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 9, for if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. There would be no more Egyptians. But indeed for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to, two things, to show you my power and to proclaim my name through all the earth. Do you, do you realize how that just dominates the Old Testament? It just dominates the Old Testament and the New Testament. So God intended to restore the Jewish people to their land, and he intended to renew them spiritually. They didn't deserve it. Hey, look, they didn't deserve it. By the way, do we deserve to be saved and have all of our sins forgiven and go to heaven and spend all of eternity in the glory of heaven? Do we deserve it? No, not a single one of us deserves it. If we got what we deserve, you wouldn't like it, I promise you. Now, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24, look at it. It's another, I will. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you where? Into your own land. Now, this was a promise to bring the Jewish people back to the land from Babylonian exile. Understand, in, in biblical prophecy, there is, a, there is a, a near application to the biblical prophecy. It, it's getting the children of Israel from Babylon back into, into the nation, the land of Israel. But there's also, in, in biblical prophecy, there's a, a far aspect or application of that prophecy. I want you to understand that this has not been fulfilled in totality yet. It will be fulfilled in the future. And I'll tell you, 1948 went a long way in, into making sure that, that there was a, a fulfillment of this prophecy. So God promised to restore the Jewish people to their own land. In verse 5 of chapter 36, 
Once again, God referred to this special piece of real estate that has become so controversial, he calls it my land. He gave it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants as a permanent possession. Look at Psalm 105, verses 7 to 11. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded, look, to a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statue, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as a portion of your inheritance. Note it, he calls it an everlasting covenant up to a thousand generations. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16 and 17, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, Though I had removed them far away among the nations, though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them uh, a little while in the countries where they had gone. Verse 17, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you, look at this, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. God says, I will give you the land of Israel. I have been so disturbed by what we're seeing on college campuses. What we're seeing in major cities like New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and these other major cities. It defies anything that I've ever seen before. The worst, listen, the worst atrocity against the Jewish people since the Holocaust happened on October the 7th. And yet people, it didn't take long, did it? It didn't take long for the narrative to turn and for people to start blaming the Jewish people for what happened to them, for the fact that 1,400 of them were brutally murdered and the other atrocities that occurred that I can't speak about. I, I want you to see... Uh, a front page story that's dated May 14th, 1948. Look at it. Next page, page five. It's called the Palestine Post. This is an actual picture of the, the front page. It was May 14th, 1948. For approximately 2,000 years, the Jewish, have been, Jewish people have been scattered to the four corners of the earth. And last week I shared with you some of the history of, of how the Zionist movement got its start. But I want you to know, on May the 14th, 1948, one of the most important prophetic developments that's, that's occurred in 2,000 years occurred. The Jewish state was formed. They were immediately attacked from the south, the east, and the north. The fact that this ragtag bunch of Jewish zealots were able to withstand that three-pronged attack against them and survive can only be attributed to one thing, the power of Almighty God. Let me tell you, the fact that the Jewish state was born on May 14, 1948, has a stamp of God's approval on it. That's the front page. Listen, no other people group has ever been forcibly removed from their ancient homeland twice. 
and then scatter to the nations for 2,000 years only to then return to the same piece of real estate as a sovereign nation. Never happened before, folks. You say, well, it's a coincidence, Pastor. Yeah. The people who returned came as an identifiable people holding the same customs and traditions, even, listen, this is, this is miraculous in and of itself. Do you realize that the Hebrew language had died? There was, there was no Hebrew language. And yet, one Jewish man began to study the ancient Hebrew language. And he taught it to his wife and he taught it to his kids. And he would not allow anybody in his house to speak anything but Hebrew. And then other families asked him to teach them. And it just began to multiply, multiply, multiply until the Hebrew language, which had been dead for over 2,000 years, was suddenly revived. Do you realize how miraculous this stuff is? I, I tell you, when you read stuff like this, and you study stuff like this, and you study a prophecy like Ezekiel, you realize that the name of our God is awesome. The power of our God is unlimited. Nothing is impossible with God. I would encourage you, be careful of jumping on the wrong bandwagon. There's so much pressure today to go against Israel. It's amazing how people are are falling all over themselves, compromising. Listen, I may go to jail. I may get a bullet between my eyes. I'm going with the Word of God. I'm going with the Word of God. Listen, the Bible says it's God's land. The Bible says God has given it to the Jewish people. And that's what I'm going with. By, by the way, you read the book of Revelation. You read New Testament prophecy. The Bible said Jesus is coming again. Guess where he's coming? He's not coming to Los Angeles. He's not coming to New York City. He's not coming to Washington, D.C. He's not coming to New Orleans, Louisiana. He is coming to Jerusalem. And he's gonna, his feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that they're going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists during the tribulation period who are going to carry the gospel to the known world in the tribulation period. But yet people say, well, God is through with Israel. Hey, let me warn you about something. Don't believe replacement theology. You say, well, what's replacement theology? There, there are some theologians and really smart people who believe that Israel is no longer uh, uh, viable, that when the church was birthed, the church is a new Israel. Let me tell you, the church is a new Israel, but I'm telling you, the old Israel is still viable, I promise you, and God's got a plan for Israel. You know what's amazing is all of this, like the, the rebirth of the state of Israel and, and, and the fact that people from all over the world are going back. By the way, I got a, a message uh, this past week, and, and a, a young Jewish man who's married to an American girl, that's, she's kin to a family in our church. And he went back to Israel, and he's in Israel right now. And she asked me to pray for him, to pray for his safety, to pray that God would guard him, that God would be with his young wife because she's worried sick, as you could imagine. But Jewish prophets prophesied all this around 2,500 years ago. 
And we're seeing it happen before our very eyes. So God not only promised to gather his scattered people and restore them to their land, he also promised a spiritual cleansing through a new covenant. Look at Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now that new covenant was not put into into working order until what? Until the Lord Jesus came, died on a cross, shed his blood for our sins, and was raised from the dead. Jesus was talking to his disciples. He said, this is the new covenant in my what? My blood. The new covenant promotes spiritual cleansing for God's people. That cleansing is made possible through the blood of Jesus. But don't miss the scope of this cleansing. I will cleanse you from all, notice the word all, all your filthiness and from all your idols. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to heaven. But look at verse 11. People often read that and they, 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 uh, they bow up. But look at verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. So, so listen, do you understand what it's saying here? It's saying that, that some, of, some of the people in the church at Corinth had been involved in some of this kind of sinful activity, and they were saved. They were washed. They were sanctified. They were justified. But God also promised a spiritual transformation through a new covenant. Look at verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen. Religion works from the outside in. Jesus works from the inside out. So what is a heart of stone? Well, it's a stubborn, hard, and unresponsive heart. What is a heart of flesh? It is a heart that is sensitive to God, His Word, and therefore longs to comply with God's will and God's Word. And God says right, he promises right here to the nation of Israel, he said, I promise you, I'm going to give you a new heart one day. I'm going to give you a new heart. A heart of flesh in exchange for a heart of stone suggests a change so radical and profound that no one but God could do it. Look at John 3, 3. Nicodemus, a very religious man there in Israel, came to Jesus at night, and and he wanted to question him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, you've got to have a new heart to go to heaven. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So God also promised something else. He promised spiritual support through a new covenant. Look at verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Remember, uh, a a week or so ago, I, I said, in a Sunday morning message, I said, you can't live the Christian life. Do you understand? You cannot live the Christian life in your power. You cannot love somebody that hurt you in your power. You cannot forgive somebody who stuck a knife in your back in your power. You can't do it. You can't share the gospel with a cantankerous lost person in your power. 
But if you're a born-again believer, you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who indwells you, empowers you to live the way God wants you to live and to obey the teachings of the Word of God. Look at verses 28 to 30. I'm running out of time. All right, you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. Do you see that? You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. Do you want to know why there was a Zionist movement back in the late 1800s that, that, that multiplied and mushroomed until uh, 1948 occurred and the state of Israel was rebirthed? It's because of this right here. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. So you will be my people and I will be your God. There will be a, a fresh new relationship with God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. I, I tell you what, if you went to Israel today, you would be amazed at how productive the agriculture is in Israel. I mean, it's amazing. And before 1948, it was desolate. It was just absolutely nothing grew there. How do you explain that? It's fulfillment of biblical prophecy. The promise of land and gathering to the land are a part of the fabric of the new covenant. Do you understand? It's a part of the fabric of the new covenant. Well, well Pastor, the, the new covenant is Jesus dying on the cross Shedding his blood for our sins being raised from the dead. Yes, it is. But I want you to notice that right here in verses 28 to 30, this is tied right into the new covenant. You will live in the land that I gave you to your forefathers. So you'll be my people and I'll be your God. Look at verses 31 and 32. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself. In other words, after they're back in the land, after God has instituted the new covenant, they will, you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Warren Wiersbe observed, I, I love this quote, when some people remember their sins, they enjoy them again in the dirty depths of their imagination. This is evidence that they really haven't judged them and repented. When the true children of God remember their past disobedience, they're ashamed of themselves and abhor themselves because of what they have done to the Lord themselves and others. In verse 32, the Bible says, I'm doing this for, for your sake. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. God makes it abundantly clear that this outpouring of grace, mercy, and restoration will result in the glory and the honor of the one true God all over the world. We've covered a lot of ground tonight. Now, next week, we're going to finish with verses 33 to 38, and then we're going to jump into 37. Now, 37 is where I've been, I can't wait to get to. The Valley of Dry Bones. What does it mean? What, what, what does that vision mean? Ah, you got to come next week to find out, Okay. I encourage you to come. Bring other people with you. This is going to get real good here in verse 30, chapter 37, 38, and 39, I promise you. We're going to get real prophetic, all right? Well, thank you for being here tonight. I hope and pray that as you walk out of here tonight, you'll remember this one thing. 
live in such a way that our great God is honored and not profaned by the way you live, by the way you talk, and things you do. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that we would honor your name. I pray that when people look at our lives, they would see that our God is real, that our God is the one true God, and that you have the power to do amazing things in our lives and through our lives for your glory. Lord, help us to honor your name the rest of this week. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.